Hi, this is Bill Whalen, the host of Goodfellows. Thanks for listening to the audio version of the show, but we wanted to let you know that Goodfellows is primarily a video production, and you're missing a lot of extra features by only listening to our show. Give it a look by going to hoover.org forward slash Goodfellows to see what you're missing. Thanks. The welfare state supporters are fighting against charter schools. The NAACP is fighting against charter schools. Uh, the teachers' unions give a lot of money to politicians. They give money to the NAACP. Moreover, if you have uh, people coming in with charter schools, then you don't have the local political ward healers, as it were, controlling all these resources that they can use to reward their friends and punish their enemies. And so therefore, they want to control of the schools because the schools are a source of jobs. Uh, whether or not the kids learn anything is not their concern. Tuesday, October 24th, 2023, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be your moderator today, joined by two of our three Goodfellows. Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster cannot make the show today, but we'll soldier on without him. I'm glad to report that we are joined by the historian Neil Ferguson and the economist John Cochran. They are both Hoover Institution Senior Fellows. Guys, good to see you. We're going to do two segments today. One is going to be on the Middle East and the economy. Since it's October, I thought John and Neil, we might also talk a bit about markets. Give John a reprise as we're doing world politics. We'll go into John's sweet spot of economics. But first, we're going to talk about education. And we have on our show today somebody who's something, someone who's a pioneer in this field. Uh, he is actually a champion of what is called virtue-based uh, education. Joining the show for the first time is Ian Rowe. Ian Rowe, in addition to being an American Enterprise Institute Senior Fellow, is the co-founder of Vertex Partnership Academies, a virtues-based public charter high school in the Bronx. His past accomplishments in the field of education include a stint as CEO of Public Prep, a nonprofit network of public charter schools based in the South Bronx and the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Ian Rowe is also chairman of the board of Spence Chapin, a nonprofit adoption services organization, and the co-founder of the National Summer School Initiative. And he serves as a senior visiting fellow at the Woodson Center and a writer for the 1776 Unites campaign. But wait, there's more. <laughs> yes. He's also an author. His book's title, Agency, the Four-Point Plan for All Children to Overcome the Victimhood Narrative and Discover Their Pathway to Power. Ian, welcome to Goodfellows. And as a Hoover Institution partisan, I must say I was delighted to see photographs of Vertex students holding up copies of Shelby Steele's terrific book, yes. The Content of Our Character. Why that book for those young minds? Well, first of all, thank you uh, for uh, uh, being invited to, to be in with such august uh, company. Uh, yes, well, Shelby Steele actually visited our school a few weeks ago with his uh, son, Eli Steele. They're, they're filming a documentary called White Guilt. Uh, and, you know, uh, Shelby Steele visited and, you know, you have these moments in your life when, uh, when earlier in your life you have an interaction from afar with someone who really changes the way you think about your life. And when I first read Content of Our Character, you know, 30 years ago, uh, I had been working in New York City and, and being a, a Black professional uh, in, in the world, trying to make it and, and starting to develop my own views about race and what it meant uh, in America. You know, I was a a child of immigrants, Jamaican immigrants. I remember when my dad uh, uh, was in the United States, he was you know, born and raised in Jamaica. He always said when he was in Jamaica, 
I am a man. I'm a man. It wasn't until we came to the United States where he learned he was a black man. And that, and that prefix, that adjective had meaning that somehow being a black man in this country meant that somehow you were less than or that you had less opportunity. And he rejected all of that. He just said that makes no sense. This is a country that we've come to for great opportunity. And I, as growing up, I always grappled with this. And then I read this book, Content of Our Character, which uh, put into words uh, this feeling that I had that I can be successful in this country. And we're deluding ourselves that race has to be the biggest factor that determines the future of any given individual. And so that book, Content of Our Character and Shelby Steele, was one of the sort of you know first uh, pieces of literature that I read that really uh, shook me to think in a new way and, and really affirmed a lot of the things that I'd already been thinking from my own parents and how they viewed America as a place that opportunity was there if you could be prepared for it. So fast forward 30 years later to have Shelby Steele in my school uh, with my students uh, talking about the content of our character. And so that book is now uh, going to be part of the canon uh, for Vertex, meaning every single student that that book will be uh, part of the required reading literature. Let's talk a bit about the Bronx, and I'll let Neil and John take over. Uh, for those uh, not familiar with the United States geography, the Bronx is a borough in New York City. Uh, it's home to the New York Yankees. It's the childhood <laughs> yeah. home of Jennifer Lopez, Al Pacino, and Ralph Lauren. How's that for an eclectic group? Very the nice. Bronx, the Bronx has problems, though. Uh, it suffers from a higher poverty rate than New York City as a whole. Assault and robbery rates are far higher than the national average. And in terms of the guarantee of a quality education, this is a problem. Uh, according to the Annenberg Institute for School Reform, and I'll quote, 90% or more of high school students in five Bronx neighborhoods are not ready for college-level work by the end of four years of high school. Ian Rowe, you're an academic, but you're also an innovator. What lessons do your experience in the Bronx provide in terms of trying to provide quality education? for kids. Yeah, so the numbers that you just described are very sobering and very real. You know, uh, right now I'm sitting in District 12 in the Bronx, which is one of the highest poverty districts in the country. And most people think when they think of poverty, they think of mostly rural locations, Mississippi, Alabama, which certainly have their uh, challenges. But in places like the Bronx, you've got density of poverty. So you've got housing projects, um, you, you mentioned some numbers, you know, the non-marital birth rate in this community is 84%, meaning more than eight out of 10 babies that are born are born outside of marriage. And that, you know, um, that linked with poverty, you know, absence of fatherhood, that can lead to a set of, you know, very challenging issues uh, for kids growing up. And I've determined to create an empowering alternative uh, for our students. And you know, the thing that's so challenging as it relates to education, you know, we just uh, reel off these numbers. There is a legislative structure that bans the ability to open new schools. So we are what's called a public charter school. And, and I guess for your international audience, that is a, an innovative structure within the traditional public school system, where unlike most public schools that are governed by teachers unions, that have a, a, a bevy of regulations, 
uh, we are allowed to operate much more freely. We have the ability to determine the curriculum, to devise a, a virtues-based structure, to um, set compensation levels that pay our teachers well. We have the ability to hire and fire our own teachers without going a three <laughs> without going through a three-year uh, rigmarole. Um, and so we are a public charter school. But even we, when we built uh, this what we believe is a world-class, uh, virtues-based, international baccalaureate high school, we were sued by the teachers' union to try and shut us down even before we opened. Thankfully, we were victorious and now uh, are open and able to demonstrate that we can build a great school in this community. But it's a microcosm of the larger issue uh, facing American uh, public education, where there's a lot of barriers uh, to provide what should be standard operating procedure for every kid in our country, which is the ability to choose a great school uh, for their future. So I'm a keen fan of charter schools and uh, New York has become a kind of experimental laboratory. Uh, there's uh, success academies uh, there too. I think it might be helpful for the audience to get a sense of uh, why charter schools help not only the kids who go to them, but help raise standards generally. For me, this is a really powerful argument in favor of this kind of educational structure. By getting uh, different kinds of schools at work, you, you actually end up improving education yes. generally. Talk a bit about the kind of spillover effects, uh, the, the, uh, the positive network externalities, as John would probably like me to say. <laughs> yes. And, and I'll make one comparison for your uh, listeners who are in England. Uh, a public charter school is, is akin to what you would call a free school. So we are big fans of Catherine Verbalsing, who leads something called the Michaela Community School. And Catherine's actually working with us at Vertex and helping us devise our strategy and professional development. So it's a similar kind of structure where your intake is... Uh, you know, kids from every background, it's not selective. Uh, and we take children in some of the toughest communities and provide an exceptional education. To your point about how charter schools not only benefit the kids inside the school, it benefits kids who are even in neighboring schools. So Success Academy is, is one example of that, where they've reached a level where, and in charter schools in general, like for example, in Harlem, I think the numbers are somewhere to the point where 60 to 70% of all of the kids who now are in Harlem are attending a public charter school. And what has tended to happen is that the district school, the traditional district schools, when faced with, you know, sometimes people don't like the word competition, but that's what it is. <laughs> when, when faced with this competition, they're forced to improve. Um, because what typically happens is that the parents and families vote with their feet. You know, if you're in a district um, that historically only 20 to 30 percent of kids are reading at grade level, and suddenly there's this uh, charter school, which is, you know, five minutes away from your home, you see these kids, they're in uniforms every day, they're generally... Uh, more well-behaved. They're, uh, you know, generally kids who seem to be more determined to get a better, a better education. You'll opt to go there. Um, 
And what's interesting, you know, charter schools in many ways uh, attract the kind of family that 30, 40 years ago would have opted for a religious school or a local Catholic school. Um, because in many ways, many charter schools like us, a virtues-based school, are very values-driven, a lot of order, a lot of discipline, academic rigor, high expectations, but we're tuition-free. Uh, and so a district school will lose their students uh, to public charter schools unless they improve. And so there's been great data, not only in New York City, but in other locations, especially when there's a concentration of high quality public charter schools, it almost forces the overall district uh, to improve. I'm so glad you mentioned Catherine Burble saying a good friend of uh, of mine and of of my wife Ayan's. Uh, Ayan recently visited that that school, Michaela School, and it's just a great example of of how you can make a change in the debate on education by just modelling good structures, high quality education, and the kind of values that I know are central to what what you're doing. And th this is a fight that's going on all over the world. There's a, some great research showing that wherever there's more competition, even if that is a dirty word for some people in education, <laughs> standards right. generally go up. And and, and you're just a, a, a perfect illustration of the point. But I know John wants to come in, so I'll shut up. And just to linger on the point just for a second, in the absence of competition, there's no uh, countervailing force that compels schools to improve. You know, generally, state authorizations, they're very, they're very lax, they're very lackadaisical. So a school, a traditional district school, I mean, in Baltimore, Maryland, another city, just, you know, a couple hundred miles from here in New York, you have 25, 30 schools in which zero, literally zero children are passing the uh, annual state proficiency exams in math and reading. And this has been going on for a decade, right? So, so where is the force that's compelling those schools to change? And so it's, it's, it's not an insubstantial point. The need for competition, the need for some um, entity to create, you know, Adam Smith, the invisible hand uh, that forces uh, school leaders to shift. So I just wanted to underscore the point. This is uh, actually Milton Friedman's original case for vouchers uh, was not to create charter schools, but simply to introduce public uh, competition in traditional public schools and that competition would be the secret sauce to force uh, change. I think just I want to back up a little and and tell us what is the secret sauce? How are you producing such uh, amazing results with, um, you know, a, a very challenging group? Because because it's not just, oh, we have a charter model. It's what oh, you right. do with the charter model that matters. Um, and, and then I want to, well, I'll ask my second question later. So first, <laughs> give us a hint of what it takes to run a, a really successful school uh, in a, in such a challenging neighborhood. Yes. Well, um the the primary answer to that question is never accepting that our results are so amazing that we can't continue to improve so that's that's really the underlying um foundation because you know we we there's always another there's always a, a next level of greatness um I mean, if you want to build a great uh, school system 
it's not a mystery, you know, <laughs> it starts usually with some kind of educational freedom or school choice so that parents have the ability to select a great school that they believe aligns with their values and aligns with their expectations of academic rigor, whether that's an elementary program, middle school, high school program, specialization, but that there's a degree of choice that you're just not forced to go to your local school, which unfortunately is uh, part of the condition in, in uh, many places, certainly in the United States. So that's usually the first element, that there's some degree of choice. Then um, it's all about school leadership uh, um, because you know we often talk about the quality of teachers, which is obviously important, but the quality of teachers uh, is often driven by the quality of leadership um, uh, within the school. Um, leadership then determines uh, the selection of teachers, the professional development of teachers, and the culture that you build within the school. So for example, uh, it used to be that in selecting teachers, there were two primary criteria. One was subject matter knowledge, and two was pedagogical capacity, right? Does the teacher know their stuff and do they have the ability to teach it? Well, increasingly over the last few years, a third criteria has become very important, which is ideological alignment. Uh, particularly in the United States, there's become this kind of social justice activist uh, nature amongst teachers where they now feel it's their job to uh, uh, provide what they call the truth uh, to students that, you know, we're in an oppressive society or there's an oppressor versus oppressed uh, dynamic. And so we've become, you know, uh, very clear that for our faculty, this isn't about um, uh, uh, some framework, uh, social justice framework that is in your head that you're seeking to deliver to students. I mean, in fact, even with our schools, you know, I've done a number of debates on, on uh, critical race theory, on C-SPAN, which is our uh, sort of, uh, political uh, information um, channel here in the United States. And so, you know, and I debate against critical race theory, and I think that the, the harms that it does to our students uh, and adults. And so we actually have candidates who are applying to teach at Vertex Partnership Academies actually have to watch uh, that beforehand, just to give a sense, you know, you're coming into a school where the leader uh, talks about these things. Uh, and rather than talk about, you know, critical race theory in our schools, our school is organized around the four cardinal virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And we take that very seriously. For example, courage, the I statement associated with courage is that I reject victimhood and boldly persevere, even in times of struggle and uncertainty. These are words that we want our students to memorize, first in their head, and then ultimately in their heart. So another ingredient we think of building a great school is actually being clear about what it is that you're uh, indoctrinating um, our kids in. In the same way that competition is often a dirty word, uh, when you talk about public edu education, the word indoctrination is often also you typically viewed in a negative sense. We actually embrace it. Every school indoctrinates into something, whether you're doing it deliberately or not. And so we've said we're going to be very clear that the cardinal virtues 
are embodied, uh, the very attitudes, behaviors, mindsets that we want our students to follow. So that's a second ingredient of, of uh, what we think um, is important. And then from that, as you might imagine, a really knowledge-rich uh, curriculum, direct instruction. Uh, we've learned a lot from Catherine Burblesing actually on this point that for a lot of our students, a, a sort of uh, constructivist or inquiry-based model is much more challenging with students who oftentimes don't yet have the kinds of background knowledge that one can assume in more middle and upper class uh, communities where they may have had a stronger foundation uh, growing up. And so uh, our teachers actually teach, you know, we can't, um, we can't just make the assumptions that our kids are going to museums or other things on the weekend unless we're starting to do that, uh, which, which we will be, frankly, <laughs> for, our, for our school. Um, so, so, uh, so a very content rich curriculum in our case, you know, we're going to have a very rich, uh, canon of books from, from the best works, uh, in literature from Shakespeare in our canon basically will be books that are at least a generation old, you know, works that have stood the test of time, great works in literature, music, art. Uh, poetry, you know, our students will learn uh, poetry like uh, Invictus uh, by William Ernest Henley, you know, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. All of these are ingredients, there's no silver bullet, um, you know, there, there's no, anyone who runs schools, it takes all of these things, it takes educational <laughs> freedom, school choice, it takes great leadership, great teachers, mission alignment, it's all of these things. If I could quickly follow up, yeah, the one thing we didn't mention about competition and, and Neil's point about strate- uh, complement uh, was it's network spillover. Sorry, Neil, <laughs> didn't get that right. You know, the big criticism is, well, what about the kids who are left behind? Well, you're if by improving the local public schools that you're also helping them. So I want to turn to what went so terribly wrong with um, the other schools. Um and and Neil may chime in on U.S. versus Europe. My impression is that European schools, even though they're government run and, and you don't have much choice or they at least used not to be so quite so terrible as inner city U.S. public schools, they're run by teachers unions as well as ours. What was particularly pernicious as ours? And you mentioned the the social justice thing. And I'm aware that these days, if you get a master's in teaching, it's it's 100 percent social justice and critical theory and very little. How do you actually teach kids how, how to add? It's difficult mm-hmm. to get through that. Um, but, but uh, you know, why did the teachers unions in the U.S. not just demand higher salaries and protections, but did they so thoroughly ruin the product? And this is also, it, it used not to be so bad. I, I went to an inner city public school, actually. It was a 90% black high school. It was great. <laughs> it was tracked. And and we so we you know I I was in there with the the um, kids of the uh, of, of the black elite of the south side of Chicago and yep. and we went off to Ivy League high schools but that whatever secret sauce Kenwood High School had in the 1970s doesn't seem to exist anymore. What went so horribly wrong in inner city U.S. schools? Wow, how long a segment do we have? <laughs> Not much. Oh, in 30 seconds. <laughs> um. Well, it, it uh, honestly, it is a complex answer because I could talk about the decline in family structure. You know, you're talking about the black community. We cannot deny the fact that, you know, in the New York, in the United States as a whole, the non-marital birth rate in the black community is seventy percent. 
you know, in the mid 1960s, Patrick Moynihan wrote a report on the state of the black family. He was calling attention to what he thought was a crisis, which at the time, the non-marital birth rate in the black community was, I think, 23.6 percent. I mean, you're now doing very well with these kids. So that's yes. not and, and it was pretty well, bad. Then, back yes. Then too. No, yes, yes, yes. No, 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 no question. We are we are uh, we are doing everything in our power to overcome what are uh, challenging uh, family structures and other conditions that have made it much harder. Um, I think in the past, there were more stable families, frankly, um, more values alignment. Uh, and I'll also say a, a greater uh, focus on uh, personal faith commitment. So there's there's been a sort of decline of civic institutions that have just created more of a burden on schools to have to kind of make up for those things. And so clearly we, as you can tell, a virtues-based education, we are we're as close to the line as as, as one might get in terms of religious faith in, in some ways. So we are, you're, you're no doubt, we are successful in some ways because we are going above and beyond uh, what schools traditionally had to do uh, to be successful. Um, you mentioned the teachers union. It is it, they are a huge and in, in our view negative force uh, in education. They are in our view limiting opportunity for the very students that need the the opportunity the most. Interestingly, John, if you look at the European situation, there aren't many countries that still have a monopoly uh, of state control over. Uh, a secondary and primary education. Finland is is a rare exception. In most uh, European countries, there's now quite a lot of institutional diversity and competition, not perhaps as radical as in England, because I think England really uh, has been uh, very bold since Michael Gove's reforms. But there aren't that many countries left uh, that have a kind of standard monopoly system. And you get this competition producing improved results, especially when there's also a strong private sector. And I want to just break a lance for private schools because I send my children to private schools and I've done it because I've always found that they offer better education than uh, the state or public sector. Uh, even when those schools are quite good, there's one thing I don't mind spending money on for my kids. It's it's education. By coincidence, Ian, uh, my uh, younger children have just started at uh, an English private school in Oxford and its values are kindness, courage, and respect. And I'm amazed how often my six-year-old refers to these mm. as he's navigating the new environment. He finds himself in a very different environment from Northern California. He fell over and, and grazed his knee just the other day. And he said, I'm showing, I'm showing courage. I'm not going to cry. <laughs> but your, your point about indoctrination is dead right. These things really matter to young kids and they'll reinforce what you're doing at home. And when home is weak, they'll they'll really be extraordinarily uh, important. Um, so I have a question for you before we're entirely out of time on education. It's about homeschooling. A lot of people in California, in my and, and John's kind of social uh, milieu, are really just opting out of schools or they're setting up their own mini schools at home. This was really reinforced by the pandemic, uh, but it's persisting. It's not just people working from home, they're doing school at home. And I have to say, I'm really quite skeptical about this because I think school is partly about putting your kid in amongst a whole bunch of other kids and not just a tiny bubble 
full of kids. What's your view on homeschooling? It seems to be quite a craze in in the U.S. these days. Well, I I am generally a supporter of of any structure that gives a parent the ability to choose the right education for their child, whether that's a homeschool situation, a private school, as you've just said, for your own child, a traditional district school, a charter school like ours. Generally, I want to push power into the hands of parents. In the Black community in the United States prior to COVID, there was only about 3.3% interest of Black families in homeschool. Post-COVID, the census now reports that number is 16.6%. It's incredible, right? Wow. So whether or not it's the right answer, I will always opt to give a parent that right and that opportunity. Um, and the truth is, if you're, if you're interested in homeschooling, certainly in the United States, there's some powerful resources that are available to you. There are strong homeschool communities. Um, they're reinforcing one another now with the power of the internet. Uh, there are communities that are able to connect uh, virtually. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm bullish. You know, I'm, I'm, I think the more variety, the better. I think most parents want to do the best thing for their kid. And I don't want to put myself in the position that somehow I know better than the parents. And if so, if homeschooling is their choice. Um, and, and generally, I think the market will play itself out. If homeschooling is not working out, I think a parent will then opt for a different structure. But to, um, yeah, so that, that, that's my general view. The more freedom, the more choice, the better. It is an important escape valve. But I think um, the majority of, of what Neil said, our socioeconomic class who does this, are facing um, just catastrophic choices. The local public schools are terrible. The local pi- private schools are nothing but far left political indoctrination. What the heck are you going to do? But it's an option yep. only available to uh, high wealth, uh, two parent families where one is is working lightly or not working and highly educated so that you can step in and do some of the teaching. So I, I view it as a break glass in case of emergency. But then, of course, the other thing <laughs> I've seen parents do in this case is, uh, you know, your homeschooling pod, then somebody gets, yeah, why don't we call this a charter school? And, mm-hmm. and next thing you know, you're building new institutions. And we have just a couple of minutes left, so I'd like to throw two questions at you, sir. Uh, the first, uh, there's been remarkable research on charter schools done at Stanford Center for Research on Education Outcomes, or CRIDO for short. This is run by Mackie Raymond, who is a Hoover Distinguished Research Fellow. Uh, I'd like to get your thoughts briefly on Mackie's research and what it says about what more needs to be done about charter schools, since they've been looking at it for 15 years. And then the second question, Ian, is uh, we've spent a lot of time, John and his fellow economists at Hoover, talking about the future of work. This is the debate of, of working in the workplace versus um, remote work. Let's talk about the future of education and the competition. There's tradition public schools versus public charter schools versus private schools. But now the debate, as Neil brought up, about homeschooling versus classroom. If you were a betting man, who would you bet on? Mm. All right. So first, related to Credo. So first, let me confess that uh, Mackie Raymond, I'm proud to call her a uh, a fellow uh, Pahara Aspen fellow. We were in the same cohort for a few years to get together. So I'm a huge fan of, of Mackie and her work. And the great thing about the Credo studies, is I think there have now been three of them. So it's not just yes. this last one, but consistently over a number of years, 
they've been able to show a demonstrable difference between those students who uh, uh, enter traditional district schools versus those that um, enter uh, uh, tradition uh, uh, public charter schools. And, you know, sometimes people say, oh, well, charter schools, they're 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 selecting or it's selection bias. And maybe to some degree that that is slightly true. But the the extent of the analysis that Credo has done makes it absolutely clear that by orders of magnitude, uh, kids are, have additional, uh, I forget the exact numbers, uh, but it's significant additional years of learning if a student goes through a number of years of a public charter school versus uh, relative to a district school. And so I just think it's great evidence. I mean, we have a lot of detractors, unions in particular, detractors who have no basis in evidence. And so the Credo study is very helpful to us as we approach legislators. I mean, in New York City, right now, as I mentioned, there's a barrier, there's a cap. Uh, so we can go to legislators and say, look, here's the evidence. And yeah, at least some of them will uh, will actually listen. So the Credo study is extremely important for right. us to go uh, to, to advocate. So that that's the first thing. Right. Now, who's going to win the competition? And maybe Neil and John, you want to you want to wager a bet as well. Well, just on the just on the future work, let me just say one thing here. One thing we are trying to do at Vertex Partnership Academies is break this idea that college is the only destination uh, post high school. So in our school, at the end of sophomore year, and we have an international baccalaureate model, but at the end of sophomore year, uh, students will be able to choose either the IB diploma, which is a more traditional college or career pathway, or something called the IB careers model. And in the careers model, in the last two years of high school, embedded with the curriculum is the opportunity to do apprenticeships or internships in high school. So for us, our first industry will be computer science, where over the course of two years, you'll learn how to become a computer programmer, and that you will actually, at the end of high school, have an industry credential with labor market value. So if you want to, you'll be able to go directly into industry, directly into a job, if that's what you so choose. And over time, you know, when I went to high school, we, our structure is a specialized high school in New York. We had 14 different majors. So over time, we'll, we'll envision healthcare. We'll have a phlebotomy, um, course of study, meaning being able to take blood and in a hospital. And, you know, phlebotomists can make a good amount of money coming out of high school. And so it's this idea that we break the model of college for all and that we want to create more uh, multiple pathways within the secondary experience. So when we talk about the future of work, I actually think it's very important to talk about the future of high school and how we embed a structure so that college now becomes a very good option, but it's an option. Uh, on equal footing with being able to have uh, industry expertise that can earn you a job coming out of high school. Neil, John, any thoughts? Couldn't agree more. I, I, I miss shop. <laughs> Wait, I'm yes, the, yes. I'm from the generation that actually had shop and it was wonderful. And they taught me how to properly use a power saw. You, you don't learn that in high school anymore. <laughs> 100%. I just actually, we are looking at designing a shop structure in our physical structure here at Vertex. It's very important. It's tactile. You learn a skill. And these things are still highly valuable and highly needed 
uh, and you don't necessarily need a college degree to be successful. It's not denigrating a college degree. Well, these things are less likely to be disrupted by AI. Yeah, well, high school and college don't teach sort of practical life skills, uh, um, including the shop, how to use a screwdriver, but also including how to fill out your taxes, how a credit card works, yep. uh, you know, things one needs to know, along with yes. you know, where did America come from and why are we here? <laughs> yes, yes. Ian Rowe, enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for coming on, Goodfellows. Keep on doing the great work you're doing. Oh, well, gentlemen, thank you. Now on to our B segment, and John Cochran, this one is for you. Loyal Goodfellows viewers know for the past several episodes, John has had to endure the domination of historians as Neil and H.R. McMaster and even Stephen Kotkin have come on and talked about world politics. Now, actually, I'm joking. John Cochran likes being an amateur historian. He likes to get in the ring and joust with them. But, John, we're going on your turf today, and we're going to talk about economics. But, my friend, we're still going to stay in the Middle East in this regard. I'm curious as to your and Neil's thoughts on economic ramifications of the violence in the Middle East. For example, we have the New York Times reporting that Jay Powell, the chair of the Fed, uh, is watching the region closely. Quote, geopolitical tensions are highly elevated and pose important risk to global economic activity. International Monetary Fund analysis points to, quote, worsening longer-term growth trends as economies struggle to lift productivity, barriers to free trade mount amid worsening political tensions, and public debt rises around the world. Standards & Poor's reports on inflation, further increase in energy prices triggered by escalating hostilities in the Middle East, quote, could underpin inflation and weigh on economic activity. John Cochran, as you watch what is going on in the Middle East, as you watch the world in a very tense situation, your thoughts on what to watch in terms of economics? I don't think there's anything particularly deep uh, there, and that's all right and fairly obvious. For the moment, not a big effect. If this turns into a big shooting war in the Middle East, uh, big effect, uh, and not just via oil prices. Mm-hmm. Neil? Yeah, I think that's right. If you look at the Middle East crises since, oh, I don't know, go back to 1967, most of them haven't had really major economic ramifications, say Lebanon 1982-83 or any of the recent Gaza crises. But there's one big exception to that rule, and it's 1973, the Yom Kippur War. Uh, This crisis began, of course, with a surprise attack almost, almost 50 years to the day uh, after the uh, Yom Kippur War. And That's why I think we should think carefully about what the consequences of that war were. The reason it had such enormous uh, economic impacts was the oil embargo uh, that the Arab uh, OPEC countries imposed not long after the the war had uh, ended with a ceasefire uh, and imposed, of course, on the United States as well as on other countries uh, that, that they deemed to be supportive of Israel. And that oil shop, which quadrupled oil prices, turned an incipient inflation into a really major uh, inflation and indeed a stagflation. Now, I don't think that's going to happen uh, this time around. Uh, for example, it's hard to see today's Saudi government wanting to go all out uh, with an oil embargo in the United States. I'm picking up signals from the Saudis that while they've had to kind of join in the chorus of anti-Israeli, pro-Palestinian rhetoric, they still would quite like to salvage what's left of the rapprochement between uh, Israel and uh, and their own kingdom. So I don't think it's likely that this conflict, unless I'm very much mistaken, produces as big a shock. 
But here John is, is saying a very important thing. If the conflict escalates, and it could, of course, happen after we have this conversation, to the point that the United States is attacking Iranian targets to try to bail the Israeli defense forces out in a major uh, regional conflict, then oil prices are clearly going to surge much higher than they currently are. And that will have ramifications, not least for Jay Powell, all the other central bankers are trying to get inflation back down to those uh, 2% targets they all have. So we're all also, our economy is less uh, dependent on oil than it was in 1973. We have uh, other supplies, greater substitutes. The direct oil prices thing to the U.S. I think is smaller, larger for Europe. Uh, one yeah. of the issues in Neil's great column uh, this week was that Europe has just pivoted from Russia to the Middle East. And if the Middle East oil supplies blow up, Europe's kind of go, oh, well, uh, too bad those windmills aren't running 24 hours a day. Uh, so it'll be more for Europe. But I think my greatest fear is um, not something simple like oil prices where, you know, we kind of know how to manage that. Uh, but if something really bad happens, if a nuclear weapon goes off, then then you tip over into generalized financial panic. And at that point, uh, who knows what happens? Well, John, elaborate on what is elaborate on financial panic. What do you mean by that? Uh, well, when when a big event happens, uh, all sorts of things that we've been not paying attention to start to bubble up. Um, right. You know, I learned from Neil's work about the First World War that uh, stock markets would have collapsed had they not instantly been closed. Uh, that was probably the actually unsung, the greatest financial panic of all time. You know, when do people sort of lose faith and say, I'm selling everything, I'm going to hold cash? Uh, that sort of event is what precipitates the huge problem. Then, you know, what, what would it take? Um, nuclear weapon going off, I think, would do it. The China invasion of Taiwan uh, I think of as as precipitating that sort of global financial thing. Pacific trade comes to an end, and who knows? You know, you look at your investments and say, "Let's." I don't know where everything is. Let's sell now. That that is the kind of event that I, I think uh, is the big one that that uh, I worry about. And it's worth adding that even before the Middle Eastern crisis uh, blew up, uh, there was already quite a lot of stress emanating from the bond market as 10-year yields uh, briefly passed the 5% mark, highest they've been since before the global financial crisis, uh, with, with inflation actually trending down, that's a pretty substantial hike in real interest rates. Any borrower, particularly a borrower who has to refinance imminently, is feeling a lot of pain or is about to feel a lot of pain. And I think there was already, I think, the makings of some kind of uh, quite big financial shift in equity valuations on its way before you had the Hamas uh, attacks uh, on Israel. John's dead right. You don't even need uh, things to go nuclear. You just need uh, a Chinese blockade of Taiwan to send markets uh, down a, a cliff edge, because that would be a much bigger shock to the global economy than the war in Ukraine or the current crisis uh, in Israel. And I don't rule that out, because after all, if you're Xi Jinping, and the US has got first the war in Ukraine, now a crisis in the Middle East, that's two aircraft carrier strike groups uh, taken up with that crisis. Be hard to find a better time to make a move on Taiwan than, than, than the, the current moment. I'm told he's a much more risk-averse person than Vladimir Putin. On the other hand, they seem to spend a lot of time together, those two guys. Maybe opposites attract, or maybe they're comparing notes on uh, on the next move. But, but there's no doubt that that would really be a shocker for markets. 
and here's how things these things work. There's all sorts of um, stresses building under the ground. Who's going to pay off commercial real estate? Uh, whole bunches of banks are still deeply underwater, extending and pretending. Um, your, you know, sovereign debts are huge. If interest rates spike, how are we going to roll over sovereign debts? Yeah, Italy could go under. Um, China's real estate bubble also being extended and pretended. Uh, you know, there's all that stuff bubbling around. Normally, we kind of sit and wait, and then a couple of years later, uh, it gently works itself out. But uh, if people pull the plug, then all of a sudden things go badly. So we're in this very interesting economy. The economy's still uh, bubbling along strong. Uh, you know, interest rates are now plus two real, back to historical norms. Uh, that's that's unusual relative to the recent past, but not sort of a screaming fire alarm. But there's all these things under the surface, as there always are. Uh, and, and really, uh, you know, when do those explode is the thing to worry about, and maybe they won't. But what's really not normal, John, and I know you'll agree with this, but it's worth saying is to have a federal deficit of 7% of gross domestic product at full employment. I mean, that's just not normal at all. And it's one reason why when the Middle East crisis kicked off, it wasn't a standard risk off uh, move that you saw because that, that would have seen a much bigger rally in, in bond prices. Yields would have moved downwards more. Actually, people were at one point uh, trading the 10-year at a, at a 5% yield. That ought to send gold down, but gold's actually up. So things are not normal. And I think they're mainly not normal because US fiscal policy is so out of whack. Uh, and, and given that the Fed is no longer a buyer but a seller of bonds and a bunch of uh, foreign uh, buyers are no longer buyers of bonds watch the bond market that's the thing i think we all probably need to worry about and that will of course have knock-on effects for every other market including the stock market which people talk about much more absolutely i think i think we need to start a club meal where we have end of the world is coming signs and we parade around once a week because of you know the debt the debt bomb sign and we parade around the office once a week <laughs> Well, we, we might be accused of crying wolf on that subject, John, as well, we've probably you know, been saying this for 20 years. But I mean, on this, I, I think it's been true for 20 years that the US has been an unsustainable fiscal path. It just steadily gets worse. Yeah. And, you know, it's we live in California. It's like earthquakes. And yeah, people do criticize us saying, well, you know, it hasn't happened yet. And I say, well, you know, we haven't had an earthquake in California in 20 years yet either. So do you not buy earthquake insurance? <laughs> I'm reminded of the old joke about uh, how the major newspapers report the end of the world. And the Washington Post headline is World Ends, uh, Women and Minorities Seen Hurt the Most. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reports World Ends, uh, Markets Down Sharply in Trading. And the New York Times writes World Ends, Details on page D5. <laughs> <laughs> but Neil, you mentioned uh, we're not in a normal situation. What is the road to normal? What is, how do we return to normal? Well, it's very hard to see the American political system delivering a, a kind of rational series of reforms that might bring uh, the federal government's finances uh, into equilibrium. I mean, you could do a number of, of things. Uh, you could start looking at the soaring cost of entitlements. That's something that the political class gave up thinking about uh, back in, in 2012. Uh, you could, of course, reform immigration so that instead of allowing illegal immigration, you would uh, reform legal immigration and start attracting all those talented people out in the world who would like to come to the United States and probably would do more to raise the productivity of the economy than the people currently accessing the United States. The problem is not actually rocket science. The problem is getting the, the politicians uh, in Congress 
to pass the legislation that would raise the growth rate. And uh, ultimately, that's the way out. Because you're not going to solve the problem in a simplistic way by slashing spending and jacking up uh, tax rates. I mean, a crude approach to balancing the budget uh, doesn't have a great track record. Uh, you've got to do something that raises the growth rate above the real interest rate. Right now, uh, we're heading towards a situation in which the real interest rate will be above the growth rate next year. And that's when the nasty fiscal arithmetic gets really nasty. I don't think even that will do it. I think you probably need a national security disaster to bring people in Washington to their senses. And that's where our conversation seems to me to come full circle. It probably does need things to go very wrong in US foreign policy. Maybe it is uh, a, a disaster over Taiwan to get sanity to prevail. Uh, amongst the people whose policy decisions produce a 7% of GDP deficit at full employment. I mean, it is crazy. It's so out of whack, you can't quite believe the numbers. When you look at the Congressional Budget Office projections, they all see the federal debt relative to GDP soaring in the next 20 years. And, uh, and people in Washington act like, no, we've got to have a fight about who the Speaker of the House is and take as long as possible about that, and then engage in some kind of brinkmanship over whether the government even stays open. I mean, it's just a clown show in Washington. And uh, it's a clown show, unfortunately, on the deck of the Titanic. Fuck that, John. Uh, well, Neil, you're, you're doing better than amateur economist here. That was great. I would just say the fiscal situation is even worse than you think, because the real uh, problem is not just astounding deficits at the peak of a business cycle, not the predictable march, the predictable rising ocean of entitlement spending. But what happens in the next crisis? When China blockades Taiwan, Uncle Sam's going to go to the markets and say, I need another $10 trillion of stimulus bailout. And this time I got to actually borrow some money to, to you know, build a military. And, and we just tried that and got inflation. You know, where's that money coming from? How are you going to pay that back? Asks the bond market, and and there's there's no answer to that you have you need the ability to repay in order to be able to to borrow money. Uh, I'm not so sure it's just the politicians. There's a lot of politicians who get it. Um, there's a little bit of a problem of voters too. We seem to be heading towards Argentinian uh, politics. The the news of the Argentinian election I found very interesting, where the leading candidate basically handed money out from the backs of trucks money that everybody could see was going to stop the minute the election is over. And yet this seems to have bought him 38% of the vote uh, relative to 30% for the for the libertarian. Um, and, and, you know, both parties are now in this business of, of handing out money as if modern monetary theory still held sway. Uh, and a lot of it is, is still discretionary. I mean, a trillion bucks, you know, trillion bucks for student loans, a trillion bucks for electric cars. Well, trillion bucks here, trillion bucks there. That, that That's, that's real money too. that, that habit. But I, for some reason, voters are not responding to the um, the, the sage and sober, uh, you know, within the Republican Party, the sage, sober, classical Reaganite Republicans who seem to dominate the 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 debates that nobody listens to, <laughs> and instead, uh, you know, the 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 the. The crazies are crazies for a reason because they follow incentives to be crazy. They're not crazy just because they're they're they are crazy of their own volition. Final question, gentlemen, this may be whistling past the graveyard, but with a few trading days left in October, we have so far avoided 1929. We've avoided 1987. We've even avoided the great big panic of 1907, which I'm sure you both remember quite well. Question for you two, as you look at the market and the market's health, are you bulls, are you bears, or are you some other creature? 
Well, the stock market today is just a play on AI. I mean, the, the, the stock market is only up because, what, seven companies, which are the major players in AI, are up. The big tech companies, NVIDIA. That's it. Everything else is basically down. So you've got to really ask the question differently, Bill, is, you know, do you believe it, that AI is uh, the next miracle that will deliver rising productivity and get the US and indeed the world out of these enormous problems of excessive debt. If you read Mark Andreessen's missives, you just got the Techno Optimist Manifesto. Uh, you know, I, I kind of hope that's right. Uh, and certainly, if you had, you know, bet on technological innovation over the last 30 years, you'd have done pretty well. Uh, but all that technological innovation that we've seen emanating from Silicon Valley hasn't produced the kind of productivity uh, breakthrough that would get you out of fiscal jail. Uh, and so expecting AI to succeed where the World Wide Web failed is, is I think, quite optimistic. John? Yeah, I, I was yeah, I was tempted to give the standard missive that the stock market's a random walk. Nobody can predict where it will go. And if if you could, if you could, if you knew it would go up tomorrow, it would have already gone up today. But let's let's be uh, <laughs> more interesting than that. Uh, the the techno optimist manifesto was wonderful, and I encourage people to read it. Yeah. Uh, but it certainly uh, it wasn't so much a forecast of what will happen; it's a forecast of what could happen if only the government allowed it to happen. Uh, and so that's a big danger. I mean, big tech is already heading in the direction of of like the big three car companies, a a very regulated uh, crony capitalist uh, utility. Um, and also uh, remember that um, just because things do become successful, it's not always the initial companies that make the money. So, you know, the Internet became the thing of our lifetime. Uh, but if you, you know, Yahoo, Netscape and AOL Time Warner didn't make you a whole lot of money if you invested those in the 1990s. And one thing we do know with some academic precision is that on average, buying stocks that are very high priced relative to current earnings, uh, dividends and so forth, uh, doesn't work out well in, in the long run. Those things tend to deliver low returns over the long run. Why? There's a few great ones in there, but but most of them are just overpriced, and and somebody else is going to figure out how to turn those ideas into money, uh, not those particular companies. Uh, so I'm, what am I saying about the stock market? Uh, my guess is as good as yours. I would agree that um, from a financial perspective, some of the stuff is uh, overvalued in there somewhere is things that could make a lot of money and change our lives if, if they are allowed to do so. But right, John, you get the last word. And did it feel good to talk economics? <laughs> I, you know, I, I really enjoy this show because I enjoy learning from my colleagues rather than bloviating about things I, I pretend I know something about, but mostly know that nobody knows anything about. <laughs> okay. And gentlemen, with that, we move on to the lightning round. Lightning round. All right, John mentioned the Argentinian election. Uh, there was another election recently in New Zealand, which has elected its most right-wing government in the generation with the promise of rebuilding the island nation's economy and offering tax relief. Any thoughts on that, gentlemen? Yay. Yay. <laughs> Yahoo, I, I just hope that this isn't um, part of what I see around the world. Some places are shifting right, some places are shifting left. A lot of it is the, the usual um back and forth of democracy that one crowd is in power, screws things up, and everyone says, throw the mums out and try something else. So I, I hope it's uh, a, a, um, uh, a, a 
I hope it's people sort of coming to their senses long term about what works versus what doesn't. But um, I, I'm I'm old. <laughs> I, lo- I love New Zealand and, and having a kind of woke government right the way through the pandemic under Jacinda Ardern was just terribly irritating. Uh, you feel like New Zealand's getting back to being New Zealand with the All Blacks in the Rugby World Cup final as well. But HR isn't here to add his voice to to the rugby conversation. No so rugby. No rugby no today. Rugby. No rugby. <laughs> All right, let's see if we could get Neil to say something more than yay. Let's try a two-word answer from Neil. You mentioned the speaker uh, situation in Washington, Neil, the chaos that is at. One thing about being in the House Speaker is you do not have to be a sitting member of the House of Representatives. So, gentlemen, I put it to you. If you could choose someone from outside of the United States Congress to be the House Speaker, who would it be? Well, it would have to be a British parliamentarian because the, the problem with the House of Representatives is it's just a terrible show. And the House of Commons is just, you know, three orders of magnitude better, even on a dud day. So I think the speaker should be Boris Johnson. I think it, it's high time Boris uh, played uh, the kind of role that he seems destined uh, to play. Uh, he has, of course, uh, American roots. I think if I remember rightly, he was born uh, in in New York. So Boris for speaker. John, who yeah, other than Bojo? The problem isn't really the personality of the speaker. The Republicans have a tiny minor- majority. And uh, this is a problem that parliamentary systems uh, run into when there's a tiny majority and extreme uh, extreme people can hold everything up, which is uh, what's going on right now. Not something we're used to. So uh, how do you break it? I do have a sense that back in the old days, uh, the speaker, by controlling money, power and access, was able to keep people in line. So uh, maybe I'll, I'll nominate Lyndon Johnson uh <laughs> <laughs> as 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 one possibility, because he certainly knew how to control um, the strings of money, power, and access, and keep people in line. Or maybe we can bring somebody from a parliamentary system who knows how to how to how to wrangle small minorities in line. Bibi Netanyahu may uh, may need some uh, may need a new job soon. So uh, you know, th- th- there's problems there, but that that set of talents might be uh, useful. <laughs> All right, guys, final question. Rob Gronkowski, Neil, you may know who Gronk is, as you were once a Bostonian, and Gronkowski was a a tight end for the Patriots. He now says he wants to play flag football in the 2028 Olympics. Apparently, yes, flag football is now an Olympic sport. Question to the both of you, which Olympic sports most and least interest you? And let me start here. Uh, My choice, the one I like the most is the 90-meter ski jump. The thought of flying down that ramp, soaring in the air, leading forward, then somehow sticking your landing and not killing yourself – that is incredible. The sport I like least, Neil, would be synchronized swimming. Why? Austin Powers ruined that. <laughs> Go on, John, your turn. Uh, I, I've um, really grown tired of watching the Olympics. Uh, the constant jingoistic nationalism annoys me. Uh, it seems to have been invented in the 1930s, and, and we should get over that. Uh, and, and the endless coverage of a few boring sports like figure skating uh, as opposed to not, I would love to see some of the, the 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 crazy sports that we never see. You know, where's the windsurfing competition? Where's the the Hobie cat competition? Where's the the shooting and archery and God knows what else happens out there? That I would find that much more interesting than 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 waving the flag over over two figure skaters. All right, Neil, take us home. Well, cricket, I think, has just been restored to the Olympic menu, so there will be Olympic cricket for the first time in. Uh, in many years, and and that means more cricket, which must be a good thing. Uh, but I have to sh- say, I share John's general feeling of, uh, of of boredom where the Olympics are concerned, uh, and that's because I just can't get excited by watching people run around in circles. 
most people run around in circles quite enough uh, in their daily lives without us having to watch people do it at varying speeds or over varying distances on television. So just people running, I completely can do without people running. Sorry, I know that's where all the that's where all the audience uh, is, but for me, it's a ball. Okay, well I just want to, I want to, at the cost of repetition, I find it um, America's place in the world is not to cheer and say, "Oh, America's beating Botswana in the hundred meter relay or something." And sort, of, please, that is just unseemly. <laughs> I actually disagree with you, John. I think oh. it's great when nationalism is directed into sport where it can do least harm. Uh, it tends to be when it goes into other activities that it becomes a problem. So carry on cheering for the, well, the synchronized swimming, if it's what turns you on and uh, gives you that patriotic thrill. And and maybe, uh, yes, if you live in a smaller country, go Scotland uh, has a little better. Yeah, to it. you know, there's something about <laughs> but the, we the medal count. About it. <laughs> the medal count's good for the, for the underdog. Uh, but, you know, when it's US v China, uh, you know, we're heading back to the Cold War Olympics yeah. when it's really just which superpower can bag the most medals uh, and can the nefarious tactics uh, be got away with. Uh, no, no, you're right. You're right. Watch the underdogs. And and when will we get Aussie rules into the Olympics? Still one of my favourite sports in the world, but played only in Australia. A wildly athletic game that... Uh, you need to be more or less superhuman to play. I think I'll I'll enter a bid for Aussie rules at the next Olympics. Is this wait, another wait. rugby question? I mean, please. Nothing to do with rugby. Very different. <laughs> very different sport from rugby. But w- worth checking. If you don't know about Aussie rules, it's a most amazing sport invented to keep cricketers fit during the winter. So played on a cricket pitch, but with almost no rules. And the one time I watched it live, I just remember thinking, how do they not die? They run so far, so fast. It's an amazing test of athleticism that I'm afraid I would certainly flunk. Yeah, then I have to put in a plug for sports that um, middle-aged, late middle-aged uh, academic could possibly do. Time gliding. to uh, put gliding in into the Olympics. And let me tell you, that would be a lot, a lot of fun to watch. Gentlemen, thank you so, so much for a great conversation today. On behalf of the Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, the AWOL HR McMaster, we'll have him back for the next episode, I believe. And our guest today, Ian Rowe, we hope you enjoyed the show. Till we see you again, take care. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring HR McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds. Groovy baby. Yeah, oh behave. <laughs>